is to introduce our speaker. We re- we've really got a treat today. We've got uh, a guy called Tom Scrivens, who you may have heard of because he leads the Scent event for Relational Mission, which many of you have had great time at. He's actually here with Tommy. Tom and Tommy, give us a wave. Where's Thomas? Why don't you bring Thomas? You've got two out of three. We've got Tom and Tommy here. So good to have you. Um, let's give Tom a welcome as he comes up, and I'm going to pray for him. Father, thank you that uh, we've got Tom here and we want to receive him with all of our heart. We don't want to just hear him, Lord. We want to receive him. Let him know he's loved. Let him know he's received. Receive the grace gift that you have put into him. We say, yes, Lord, we really want to receive from that. And we pray as a result, Lord, as he's on his feet, he would feel us drawing out of him all that you've put into him. We pray you would know the flow of the Holy Spirit, the freedom of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Holy Spirit, the wonder, Lord, that you bring to our hearts as we bring your word. And that, Lord, we would all be blessed, all be seriously built up in this process we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Steph. Hey, well, good morning, everyone. It's really, really good to be with you, um, spotting friends of many years in the crowd and, uh, and people that I've known for a little less than that as well. But it's really good to be with you on a Sunday and worship with you. So sweet to enjoy God together. And uh, I, before I sort of dig into to what I'm going to share this morning, I want to make an invite to you. Um, right at the beginning of the meeting, Steph divided us into two generations. And uh, I was part of the older generation because I'm 31. Um, and I felt a little bit, you know, that was a bit off of Steph to do that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, but I want to make an invite to that generation who are apparently below me in your 20s um, to come to Scent, which is happening uh, in Ipswich in April from the 11th to the 13th of April, that's a Thursday evening until uh, late Saturday afternoon, um, where we're going to be gathering together as students and 20s, and if you want to, if you're just sneaking into your early 30s like me, come along and uh, have a great time with us. We're going to be worshipping God together, spending unhurried time in his presence as we have done this morning. What better way than to spend our time in the presence of God and uh, hearing great teaching. The theme this year is the King and his Kingdom. And we're going to be uh, stirred afresh for God's kingdom work uh, across the globe. <laughs> what are we look? What are we? Have we got something on the screen there? <laughs> Steph with with hair, <laughs> and me with Lego hair. It looks like as well. So. We've got some great speakers lined up. As you can see, Steph's going to be with us. We've got Wendy Mann coming from the King's Arms Church in Bedford. Uh, She is really going to provoke us and encourage us, I know, particularly seeking God for for signs and wonders. Uh, Morris Nightingale, who's one of the pastors with me at Hope Church in Ipswich, uh, is going to be speaking as well. We are so thrilled uh, to have these folks with us for the event. So can I encourage you to book in? Can I encourage you to come along? We drove here this morning, myself and Tommy, and it took us an hour and 35 minutes. That's not bad, is it, hey? I I was probably speeding. I don't know. With Tommy as my witness, I may have gone over 70 slightly, but it was pretty good. Um, So really, it's not far. Uh, The tickets are a bargain, particularly if you book before the end of this month. In fact, the first 50 people who book in are getting cheap tickets. Um, The the thrifty 50, we're calling it. Um, So... Go to wearesent.net. We'd love to have as many of you as possible coming along and joining us. Um, 
I know you know this already, particularly if you are regularly here at Rev, um, that you are part of a, a family of churches. We are part of a family of churches, and we need you to come and be with us. And I believe you need us. You need, the, you need relational mission, and, uh, and it's so good to, to, to be together um, at Scent. So please do come along. Um, there's, there's some flyers around that I've given to Ruth. Do you want to just wave your hand? I guess you've still got them. They're, back, they're at the back now. Tuli's waving that they're at the back. Brilliant. Um, so pick up a little postcard if you just want a reminder of the information and how to book in. Wonderful. Okay, this morning um, I want to talk to you as leaders. And uh, I know that some of you here are, are here for the first time and you think, well, I'm, I'm not a leader. Perhaps you're even looking in at Christianity and thinking, I don't know what this is all about. I want to learn more. Um, but I want to particularly talk to you today if you are a Christian and if you're part of Revelation Church. But I will also be speaking to you if you're not a Christian and if you're not part of Revelation Church. But if you are a Christian and, and, and you're part of this church, I want to speak to you as a leader today. Because what God has called you to as a church is rather big. I know only a little bit of what God has called you to, just from having spoken with Steph and others in the church here. But what he's called you to is rather big. And as we, as we were worshipping, um, I felt God spoke to me about um, something that's going around online at the moment, which is like a 10-year challenge. Has, anyone, has any of you seen this? Yeah. So people post a picture of themselves 10 years ago, and they post a picture of themselves now, and you kind of see the difference. And uh, as we were worshipping... I felt like God has given you um, parts of the picture of what this church may look like in 10 years, but he hasn't given you the full picture. And there's a reason he hasn't given you the full picture, is because if you knew it, if you only knew what the 10-year difference would be, you would probably curl up in a fetal position on the floor and kind of cry a bit. <laughs> because he's got big plans for you as a church. He's got really big plans for you as a church. Maybe you've only been coming here for a little while. Maybe you've been part of the furniture for years. And he's got big plans for you. And so therefore, it's going to require a lot of leaders. And I'm not just talking about pastors or deacons here. I'm talking about leaders right across the board. And so this morning, I want to speak to you as leaders. And if you're, if you're new here and you're thinking, what are, what are all these people so crazy about Jesus for? I want to show you Jesus from the Bible because he's glorious. And I want you to, to go away just thinking about Jesus today. But we're going to have a little insight into the heart of a leader because we're going to unpack some verses in uh, Philippians chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you, you might like to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians is a letter in the New Testament, which is the second part of the Bible. And uh, here we see uh, a guy called Paul who was an apostle. He was like a father of lots of different churches, writing to a church in Philippi that he had helped to plant. And Paul is in prison at this point, and he's writing to them. Let's read, we're going to read verses 3 to verse 11. This is what Paul says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel." 
For God is my witness of how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I wonder if you've ever felt helpless to help someone. You've seen someone in a difficult situation, maybe they live far away from you, and you, you want to fix their problem, and you think, I can do nothing about their problem. Is there anyone here who, who might identify as something of a fixer? Just wave at me if you're a fixer. There's a few of you here. You just want the world to be right. You just want everything to go well for everyone all the time. And sometimes you actually find yourself running around trying to fix everyone's problems. But what happens is, if you're a fixer, is there are sometimes problems that you cannot fix. There's, there's things that you can do nothing about, that you are completely helpless to resolve. You might know some people who live far away and you think, if only I was there with them day to day, then I could fix their problem. Then I could sort them out. Or maybe there's people that you see day to day and you think their issues are so deeply seated that I don't think I can, not even with my resources, I cannot sort this. I cannot fix this. You feel helpless. You feel utterly helpless to do anything about their situation. I imagine... This is how the Apostle Paul felt when he was arrested because he was preaching the gospel. As they put the the chains on his wrists and as they slammed the prison door shut and locked the door, that he was thinking about his family all over the world because by this point there was many churches that were relating to him and he saw them as family and he was like a father to them and he's thinking, what on earth is going to happen to them? How am I going to fix this? How can I help them in their problems? What can I do to bring influence to them? And he feels helpless. Wouldn't you feel helpless if you were, if you were stuck in prison and there was people outside of prison who you knew that they needed help in some way, that all kinds of things could happen to them and you couldn't do anything about it. You were powerless to help. I believe that's probably how the Apostle Paul felt. What do we see that he does? Well, yes, he writes a letter to them, but there's no guaranteeing that this letter is even going to make it to them. There's no guarantee that even if the letter does make it to them, that they're going to read it. Or if they do read it, that they're going to take it seriously because all kinds of influences could have come into the church in the time that he's been away from them. So what does he do? He prays. And he prays earnestly for them. I know that you've been being stirred about prayer in recent weeks, so hopefully you don't need too much stirring to pray today. But I want to encourage you this morning as leaders, and I'm looking at you, if you, if you are regularly part of this church and, you are, and if you are a Christian, I'm looking at you and I want to stir you to say, if you are a leader here, you can influence people through prayer. In fact, that's one of the main ways that you can bring influence and leadership is through praying for people. Because that's exactly what we see the Apostle Paul do here. Of course, influence comes by example. It comes by living a life that is godly and in pursuit of knowing God more. But Paul knew that his prayers would have great effect. 
He knew it. He was a guy who had seen answers to prayer. He was literally blind. Someone prayed for him and he could see again. He had seen someone, he was preaching and his sermon went on so long that someone who was sitting in the window fell out of the window and died. And so they just went down and prayed for him and he was back to life again. So this is a guy who knows something about the power of prayer. He knows something about it. So he knew that his prayer would be effective. His track record with God meant that he knew that, that, that prayer wasn't a stab in the dark. It wasn't kind of like, oh, wishful thinking. I'm stuck in prison for two years. And you know, if I think some nice positive thoughts, then everything's going to be all right. No, he earnestly prayed for them because he knew that prayer was powerful to affect change. Let me encourage you this morning, leaders here, prayer is powerful to affect change. It's really powerful to affect change. And it's one of the main ways that we can influence others. So let's look into uh, a little further into the heart of this leader, uh, the Apostle Paul. In verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. His passionate love is his motive here. He really, really loves this church in Philippi. He, is, he wants to bring God in as his witness That's the trump card, isn't it? You know, God is witness to this. God will agree with me on this. I really yearn for you. I'm passionate about you. That's the heart of a leader. It's not motivated by anything else other than a deep affection. A deep affection for those that we are leading and influencing. It's not power. It's not fame. It's not riches. It's a heart affection. And this word affection here. Uh, could also be translated compassion. It might say compassion in the versions of the scriptures that you're reading. And this word in the, the Greek is used several times. The Bible was originally written in Greek. Most, most of the New Testament was in Greek. And this word is used several times. Jesus had compassion over uh, Jerusalem. He saw that they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he had this uh, heart affection, this deeply seated uh, felt emotion for the people of Jerusalem. It's used when he he meets a widow and she's lost her only son. And he has this real kind of inner kind of pain. And the word in the Greek is is really closely linked to the word for intestines. And so if you you want to be really biblical, if you want to be a biblical friend later on, or a biblical spouse, you could say to your friend or spouse, I love you with all my intestines. (laughs) Okay, see how that one goes down. Because this is the kind of love that's going on here. It's, It's something that really moves you within. It's something that Paul was deeply moved with love for the people at Philippi. He's saying, I love you with my total personality at the very deepest level. These these people were not statistics to him. These people were not statistics to him. They weren't a a trophy to him. I've got churches all over the place. No, he really, really longed to be with these people. He had a heart affection for them. They are family. That's what what the good news of Jesus does. It creates family. And you know, this is something so evident here. There's family here. The way you honor one another, the way you whooped and cheered for the youth as they left for that group, that is family. It's so good. It's so good. And that's what the, the good news does. It outworks supernatural affection within us. Not not just merely along sociological lines that we just have affection for those that are like us. But actually, the good news of Jesus works within us 
over time, affection for people who are completely different to us, who we have nothing in common with. That's why in churches that are maturing, there's no cliques where you have people having, you know, cliques where they just hang out with people who are just like them. But actually, we have a love and an affection for others who are completely different to us. I travelled this morning with, with Tommy, and he's one of my best friends. And we are from completely different backgrounds. We're com- from different continents. He's from one of the biggest cities in the world. I grew up in a town of 5,000 people where you, you pretty much know everyone. He is an engineer. He works at a power plant. He's basically Homer Simpson. <laughs> so if you've got any problems with your electricity, go and see him. He's clever. He knows stuff about engineering. I can barely add double-digit numbers together. I can't do that kind of thing. That's just not me. And yet, in Christ, we've been brought together as friends, as dear friends. He's family to me. We hang out with, with, with our families together a lot. Because what happens when you get a hold of Jesus, you also want to get a hold of those that are in him. Because that's what the Bible describes a Christian as, as being in Christ, placed in Christ. That your whole identity kind of gets dwarfed by Christ. And so you have an affection for those who are also in Christ. Because that's the overriding identity. It's not whether you're black or white. It's not whether you're you know, orientated in different ways, uh, you know, intellectually or what your passions might be. It's your overriding identity is that you're in Christ. And so Paul's got a real affection for this church. So leaders here, and I mean the vast majority of you here, because as I said right at the outset, this church is going to need many, many, many leaders to fulfill all that God has for you. Ask God for this kind of affection for his people. Ask God for this kind of affection for his people. And pray for those that you have influence amongst. Pray for those that you have influence amongst. Pray like Paul. He actually gives them an insight into his prayer for them. And this is my prayer. He says, that your love may abound more and more. The Apostle Paul loves the word abound. It's one of his favorite words. And he uses it again and again. He talks about the grace of God abounds for us. It means God has abundant grace. It means he's really rich in grace. He talks about in Ephesians, he talks about how God is able to do immeasurably more or abundantly more than you can ask or imagine. So he loves this word abounding. It's, it's something that, is, that Paul has seen in the character of God. Some guy uh, called Hawthorne, I've got no idea who he is, but I read his uh, quote on Friday. He says, I hope he's not a heretic. He says this, <laughs> no other word characterized for Paul the new age opened up by Christ as did the word abound. No other word characterized this new age opened up by Christ, as did the word abound. For this new age is no meagre age, but one marked by an overflowing and rich abundance of good things. That's amazing, isn't it? This new age that we are living in, we're beginning to see uh, how it's going to unfold. No other word characterized for Paul this new age more than the word abound, abundance. Paul had seen something in the character of God, that he's really rich, that he's really rich. And he prays that their love would abound more and more. Love, biblical love isn't a static reality. It doesn't just like, you don't just say, well, I've got it now. I've got this sort of love and I have it for, for God's people. 
No, it's something that it's, it doesn't stay still. It grows and it grows and it overflows. That's the biblical love that we're talking about here. It's not a static thing. It's the produce of spending time with the one who is rich in love. If you, if you want to be uh, rich in terms of finances, you might hang out with rich people and ask them for a handout. That's one way of going about it. But if you want to be rich in love, then you go to the one who is, ri- who is really rich in love. You spend time with him. And his overflowing love causes your love to overflow as well. What Paul doesn't do here is he doesn't specify what kind of love this is. Is it love for God or is it love for other people? Well, I think it's because it's both. A love for God, a growing love for him will overflow into love for others. I wonder if you've ever noticed this, that as the, uh, these apostles, these, these fathers of churches, as they write these letters, as they get older, the more they talk about love, the more they talk about it. They talk about loving one another deeply. It's the same for Peter, it's the same for John, it's the same for, for Paul. They start to talk more and more about love as they get older because they realise that that is the, the thing that really matters. That's the thing that really counts at the end of the day. Love one another and love God. They've learnt something after years of Christian ministry, after years of fathering churches, they've learnt that it comes down to that. And their heart is that the people in their churches will grow in love. Their, their focus isn't necessarily on the outward appearance. Their focus is that actually the heart will be growing more in love for God and in love for others. Because sometimes we can focus on the outward appearance, can't we? And we can want to influence others that their outward appearance would change but without affecting the heart. So yesterday I was on Instagram and a friend of mine um, who I haven't seen for a while, uh, who's a Christian, had posted something up online and I thought, oh man, that's not good. I don't, I, I, it really, something in, in me just thought, oh, I'm really sad for him. And I thought, I want to text him and say, what are you doing that for? What are you doing that for? But I then realised that the, the biggest thing that I can pray for, and when I get to see him, uh, the biggest thing I can pray for is that his heart grows more to love God more. And that his heart grows to love others more. Because it's actually that is at the core. We're not about sort of correcting people's behaviour. We're not about just trying to get people's behaviour to line up with our expectations. We're actually... That will come. But what we're, what we're asking God for is that their hearts would grow more in love for him. And so that's, that's what, what the Apostle Paul is praying for here. I want you to, I want you to grow in love for God more, that it may abound more and more. And he says, more and more with knowledge. What's this knowledge that he's talking about? I believe he's talking about knowledge of God. He's talking about knowledge of Jesus. Because in the next chapters, he's talking about how there's nothing that compares to knowing Jesus. There's absolutely nothing. In chapter 3, he says, all that I had given my life to before I came to know Jesus is worthless compared to knowing him. All that I'd strived after all that I had run headlong after is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. He uses a word stronger than that. It's, knowing Jesus is the real deal. Knowing Jesus is far greater than anything else. If you are here today and you've been wondering, what is this all about? Let me leave you this one thing, which is that knowing Jesus is far better than anything else you're giving your life to. 
is far better. Jesus is far better than anything that you might think will really satisfy. Knowing Jesus is the real deal. And this apostle, this mighty man of God, after 25 years and having seen miracle after miracle, you'd think he'd know Jesus, right? You'd think he'd know Jesus quite well. He's saying, I'm striving to know Jesus more. It's his hunger to know Jesus more deeply. You'd think he'd be pretty expert in Jesus by that time, wouldn't you? He actually met him. He literally met him. He had a conversation with him, the risen Jesus. He's hungry for more. He's not complacent. And sometimes we can get complacent, can't we? Sometimes we can think, well, I know all there is to know. I've got pretty good Bible knowledge now. If you ask me to turn to the book of John, I can get there without going to the index. <laughs> I can get there. I'm, I'm pretty good at this now. You might think, yeah, I've, I can pray some pretty sound prayers. None of the pastors look at me oddly when I'm praying. None of the, you know, I, I think I'm getting there now. We don't know the half of it. If, we, if we're satisfied with how well we know Jesus, we haven't got a clue. Jesus has satisfied the mind and the heart of the Father for all eternity. God is absolutely fascinated. God the Father is fascinated with Jesus. And there is nothing more precious in the world to God the Father than his Son. There's nothing more precious. That means there can be nothing better than Jesus. So if you're searching, there can be nothing, more, there can be nothing greater than Jesus. We're not going to get bored of Jesus in eternity. We're not going to think, oh yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I'm there now. I've attained to the level that I want to be at in terms of my knowledge of Jesus. No, there's more and more and more for us to know. He is endlessly fascinating. Jesus is endlessly fascinating and satisfying. He really is. And so the prayer that the apostle prays for his church in Philippi is this. I want you to know Jesus more. And that's our prayer as leaders for those that we're influencing, those we're spending time with, is that they would know Jesus more. And that was my prayer as I was concerned for my friend last night. Would he know Jesus more? Would he fall more and more in love with Jesus we think we've got to grips with him. We don't know the half of it. Sometimes we get Christmas presents, don't we? And they kind of wear off a little bit after. Maybe you're at that point already. A month on and you're thinking, yeah, that, that top I got is not looking so good now. Or that, that you know, I've, I've played that game now. Whatever it might be. Well, God the Father doesn't kind of wear thin. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't wear thin. They don't think, well, you know, I think I've got to grips with this now. Our, uh, our complacency is simply blindness. We're going to be thrilled by Jesus for all eternity. So, the Apostle Paul, he prays this for them. He prays it in other letters as well. He prays it in, first, uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, I do not cease to pray for you that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart opened. He prays for his churches that they would, get, they would get to know Jesus more. And the way that we get to know Jesus, well, there's many ways. Community helps us massively. Being in a church helps you massively to get to know Jesus more. Being in worship times like we've just had, praise times like we just had, will help us massively. But no one can do scripture-soaked prayer for you. 
No one can do that kind of secret place prayer for you. No one can do that kind of shutting your door prayer for you or that walking in the forest prayer for you. No, no one can do that for you. you, you there's, a, there's, a, there's more of Jesus for you to know in the secret place. And as we, as we get to know him more, our lives will be ordered. That's what we see here. Our lives will be ordered. They won't necessarily be easy. In fact, they, they probably won't be. But things will be in the right order. As we pursue Jesus, as we get to know him more, our lives will be ordered. Let's see what he says in verse 10, shall we? He says, My prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The more time spent pursuing the real deal, that is Jesus, the easier it will be for us to spot that which is the fake thing, that which is phony, that which is uh, counterpart, the counterfeit, whatever the word is, not counterpart. It, the, the more we will we'll be able to discern what is healthy and what is not healthy, what is actually going to benefit us and what will not. The more we, we, we spend time uh, pursuing Jesus, all else will be exposed. All else will be exposed as a fraud. When I was 14 years old, I really wanted a pair of uh, Adidas three-stripe popper trousers. Did anyone have any of those? Do you still have them? I don't know. I, they didn't, the fashion didn't last long because I think people worked out that that could easily be exposed. So your mates could come along and just go, bam, and you'd, you'd be pretty much down to your boxes. But I really wanted some trousers like that. I wanted some Adidas popper trousers. That's all I wanted because my mates had them. And I think my mum, in her wisdom, knew that I was going to have a growth spurt any day soon and that there'd be no point in spending 35, 40 quid on a pair of trousers because I'd, I'd be out of them before long. So after much nagging, I got a pair of four-stripe <laughs> Abbey Boss trousers. <laughs> and I kind of went out in them thinking, yeah, these are all right. Before long, when mates played pranks on me, you realised that this wasn't really the real deal. The poppers became broken very quickly, and I got mocked because there was four stripes, not three stripes, and that was the th you had to have three stripes and not four. These Abbey Boss trousers were not good. They were not the real deal. They may have looked good initially when I put them on, but later on down the line, I realised that they were, they were a fake. They weren't the real deal. And there's a whole bunch of things that might be grey areas for us, right? There might be a whole bunch of things that we think, well, I'm not sure if that's God's will for me or not. The more we pursue Jesus, the more we'll see, uh, that, that isn't the real deal. That's not really going to satisfy. Right. Like, you'll be able to be more discerning about what is real and what is a fraud. Because some things look really good, don't they? Some things look, you know, some, the ways in which we might spend our money or spend our time, the things that we might do for entertainment, we think that's going to be good. But what Paul is getting at here is not the kind of ins and outs of you know, what you should and shouldn't do. It's about pursuing Jesus. And as you taste the real deal, you're going to know what is really a fake, what is a fraud. And Paul's prayer is this, let them know you more, Lord, so that they can make wise choices. Choices of real joy. So that they will be pure and blameless on that day. And he has this day in mind Note it here, he has it in verse 6, he says, God is going to begin, who's began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And then in verse 10, again, he says, so that you will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He's got this day in mind, 
leaders, have we got the day of Christ in mind? Have we got this, this great and final day of his return in mind? Do we long for it? Do we cry out like uh, John does at the end of the very end of the Bible? Come, Lord Jesus. Are we desperate for his return? Are we craving his return? Paul, in his final letter, he's writing to his friend Timothy. And he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, if I can find it. It's great. We'll get there. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And this word for love here, could be translated craved. It could be translated take pleasure in. How much do we crave the return of Jesus? How much do we take pleasure in the fact, Jesus, you're coming back? Or is the reality for us like it is for me often, Lord, there's some things I want to do before you come back. There's some things I quite like to see before you come back. I'd like to see my children grow old. Or I'd like to see England do something in a World Cup. I'd like to see some things, Lord, before you come back. But Paul here is saying that he craves, the, he craves the return of Jesus. He has a kind of life that is, is rooted in what Jesus has done in the past. That's absolutely the foundation of his life. But it's with a firm grip on what Jesus is going to do in the future. He, he's, sort of, he's living his present in the, in the reality of the past and in the sure and certain hope of the future. That's how he's living. Are you doing that? Are you living in the, the sure and certain hope of the future? It's not a hope of, like, I hope it happens. It's, it's a hope that is, I'm waiting for it because it is going to happen. And Jesus is going to return. And as we, as we do that, as we live that kind of life, it's then that we will, we will bear the fruit of righteousness that brings glory to God. The fruit of righteousness, you know, comes from being rooted in him, in rooted in what he's done for us, in what he's going to do for us. Fruit of righteousness comes forth. We, we actually produce fruit in line with what we are now. Because what happened to you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, is you became an oak of righteousness. That's what he made you. And so oaks produce acorns. Well, oaks of righteousness produce righteous things, righteous works, good things. You become what you already are. You become what you already are. And so we need to be those friends who are rooted in what he's done for us, but with a firm grip on what he's going to do for us in his return. <clears throat> Abiding in him. That's our prayer for those that we're influencing. That's our prayer for those that we're leading in some way. That they'll be so rooted in him that they will bear fruit that is consistent with who they are. Bearing fruit in consistency with being an oak of righteousness. I want to just... Uh, speak to you particularly if you know there's a, there's, a, there's a leadership for you at Revelation Church now and in the years to come. Let me, let me ask you to take note of this fatherly heart that the Apostle Paul has for this church. 
God wants to give you increasingly fatherly, motherly hearts for those that you're serving. A yearning, an affection, a compassion. Maybe you want to even pray as we finish in a minute, God, would you give me that kind of heart? I don't want to be indifferent to, I don't want to be indifferent to what's going on around me. But also, I don't want to be a fixer. I don't want to be someone who runs around trying to plug every hole. Lord, because you're the only answer. <laughs> you're the one who really will satisfy. There's some things I can do, but you're the answer. Take note of this fatherly heart. Pray for it. Take note of the key place of prayer in Paul's life. He prays for those that he has leadership amongst. He prays for those he has influence with. He prays for them. Take note of that. Take note of the place of prayer in his life. See that his goal is not ultimately outward behavior change, but it's heart affection for Jesus growing and growing. That's what the Apostle Paul longs to see in the church that he's serving in Philippi and elsewhere. He longs to see in their hearts a growing love for Jesus. Take note of that. Take note of that. See the Apostle's groundedness in the finished work of Jesus and the assuredness of his return. Take a note of that because there will be times in the years to come as God reveals more and more of what that 10-year picture might look like. There's going to be times when you're going to have to say, Lord, I, I can't do this, but I know that you are going to do the work. I know that you are about a great work. I know that you are drawing for yourself a people from right across the world. You're, you're, you're building your kingdom. Take note of this, friends, and let me just read to you um, from Revelation um, as I finish. Steph read a little bit of this earlier as well. This is what uh, Jesus we see of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And Jesus says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This Jesus is returning. This Jesus who, John, who was his best mate, or who claimed that you know, he said he was Jesus' best mate. You would do that, wouldn't you? You'd say it. Yeah, me and Jesus. This John who, would li- who literally put his head on Jesus' chest at the last dinner they had together. This John saw Jesus and fell down like he was dead. And he turned and saw the voice that was speaking to him. And he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. These are not the stars that you you make in children's groups that might end up in the bin later on. These are balls of fire, like the sun, Big stars, holding them in his hand. 
and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is Jesus, and he will return. And there will be a great and glorious day when he returns. And he says this to John, who falls down on his face. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And then he says this in in chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And I, I, want, to, I want to reiterate, reiterate that invite of Jesus to you this morning. If you are here this morning and you say, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a Christian, I, I'm, I'm exploring this, I'm here, an invite of a friend, whatever it might be. I want to reiterate that invite to you. Jesus is saying, I'm knocking at the door of your life. And you can, you can let me in and I'll come in and dine with you. This is talking of a rich relationship with Jesus. Not just in heaven one day, but now and for eternity. And he's knocking at the door of your life today. And he, has, he, is, he, is, he is to be feared... In one sense, we just read something that would make us fear, right? If we saw that. But he's also the one who was dead and who is now alive. And he died for you. He died for you. He was the lamb that was slain that we've sung about this morning. He was the one who was brutally killed to take away all of our, uh, the punishment that we deserve. For our wrongdoing. He, he took upon him the punishment that was deservedly ours for all of the times that we have dishonored him, all of the times that we've not had love in our hearts but hate. And he did it for us. And so I, I want to pray in just a moment and I want to invite you to, to pray with me if you want to open the door to Jesus and say, Jesus, come in and dine with me. Come in and, come in and, and share with me because he'll share with you his whole life he'll share with you his goodness he'll share with you eternity if you allow him in so I'm going to pray and then I think Steph will come up and and direct us from here Lord Jesus we thank you that you are you're not some flimsy God you are you're to be feared in a good way because you are You're mighty, and you were dead and now you're alive. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're knocking on doors of hearts even now in this room, and maybe even to those listening to this later, (laughs) at a later date. You're knocking on hearts, Lord, and I want to pray now you would come and move in hearts. Maybe you're here right now and you just want to say under your breath or in your mind, Jesus, come in. I'm opening the door to you. Come and dine with me. Come and change my life. Come and share with me all that is yours. And I'll give you my sin, and I'll give you my shame, and you'll take it away. You might want to say that to him now, just in a moment of of 
of silence for 20 or 30 seconds. Just speak to him. And if, if you've done that, then please do tell someone. We're just going to have a moment of silence now. Wonderful. And Lord, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters here at Revelation Church that, Lord, that you would grow um, this kind of heart within men and women in the coming months and years more and more and more. This heart to lead and influence, to direct people to Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that you would astound this church. Lord, I think you already have. But I pray that you would do it more and more in the years to come that there'll be big steps of faith, that there'll be people stepping up and saying, yes, count me in. Lord, I pray that this this notion of a 10-year challenge, Lord, that they would be a looking back in 10 years from now and there'll be much rejoicing. There'll be much rejoicing at what you've done in and through this church for your glory, I pray. Amen.